This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I'm your host G Sampath. Last week, California-based Silicon Valley Bank, the 16th largest bank in the United States, collapsed, sending shockwaves through the startup universe. Then two more banks, the cryptocurrency-focused Signature Bank and Silvergate Capital, shut down, sparking fears of wider financial contagion, similar to how the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008 triggered a global crisis. The American government and the Federal Reserve acted fast to avoid precisely such a scenario by announcing measures aimed at boosting confidence in the banking system. The Biden administration has announced that all the depositors' savings in the Silicon Valley Bank will be protected, including those deposits that are not insured. The Federal Reserve on its part has unveiled a new lending program called the Bank Term Funding Program or BTFP, which would enable banks to borrow directly from the central bank instead of having to resort to loss-making bond sales as the Silicon Valley Bank had to do. So, what caused the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank? Could it have been prevented? And is this banking collapse something that can be contained or is it a harbinger of more such failures to come? We explore all these questions and more in this episode of InFocus. And with us today is Professor C.P. Chandrasekhar. C.P., great to have you back and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, C.P., it has been reported that the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed due to a bank run triggered by fears about the bank's financial health after it started selling U.S. Treasury bonds at a loss to pay back depositors who needed cash. So can you unpack what exactly uh, is this whole phenomenon? How did it happen? Why did it have to sell bond holdings at a loss to pay back deposits? Doesn't I mean, Don't banks have or don't, are they supposed to have adequate cash reserves for such a scenario? Well, you know, this is an, actually an, an unusual sort of uh, structure, which of course has become common as a result of deregulation of the financial system worldwide. And which is that you actually had a situation in which there's a bank which accepts deposits from those who have surplus cash. And the reason they have the surplus cash is because of them being provided huge investments to cover expenditures which are going to occur over a certain period. I mean, there would be certain a certain time sheet, term sheet associated with the kind of investments with private equity firms or venture capital firms make in startups. So these startups have a chunk of cash which they would run through till they get their next round of funding or the, or the next tranche of the, of the round of funding which has been approved. And during this period, they actually deposit these, this, this, these sums into, into uh, banks. And obviously what had happened, unusually, that in Silicon Valley, in which everything seems to be networked among a few oper- operators in the system, a lot of it went to this bank, Silicon Valley Bank, possibly appropriately named, which actually was a bank which saw itself as in, in particular servicing startup companies, venture capital firms, and so on. Now, these deposits come in, and uh, using these deposits, because a bank cannot keep deposits lying in its books and without, without doing something with it, because however low, it is paying some interest. And of course, it wants to make a profit. So what it did was it actually uh, sort of broke them into chunks, one set of chunks, of course, where, where it actually did the odd thing of actually financing 
partly the um, the venture capital firms and the private equity firms which had invested in these silicon valley startups which had then deposited this money in this bank so they became the clients in some sense being a circular flow of capital across across these three entities the second thing of course was that they put certain amount of money because you need because this this they 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 made other investments and uh, to create a portfolio in which uh, partly they would be uh, invested in what were thought to be uh, relatively more secure uh, instruments and more liquid instruments instruments which could actually be sold in order to be able to retrieve cash in case their depositors who needed to use this money over a period of time come back and say please give me more money because i need to undertake my expenditures and if there is a simultaneous uh, sort of set of demands which come from depositors and there is a liquidity crunch you need to have access to a certain set of assets which are seen as liquid and which can be traded in the market in order for you to be able to get back your capital and and pay off your depositors and which need to be secure because if if you're going to actually get hit and lose that money obviously you wouldn't be able to compensate your or pay off your depositors when the demands come from them now i presume that the way the system worked was that there was this constant flow of of money coming into the banking system because there were new startups being created and old startups getting new funding so that if you look at what happened to the deposits of the of the svb the the silicon valley bank in 2021 which was the tech boom year according to reports they actually the deposits went up from something like 102 billion dollars to about 189 billion dollars which was a huge increase so the understanding must have been that listen we are not going to be in a situation where we are not going to have enough money to meet demands from those depositors who wanted to take their deposits back because of the fact that there would be new money coming in and we can keep the system moving and therefore the risk that you might actually be caught in a situation in which you cannot you know use your bonds to be able to generate the money to compensate your depositors doesn't arise okay i mean that that was that was a kind of perception even though there were some who pointed to the fact that listen this this tech boom can't continue to last the, the tech boom of the kind that we had seen with startups coming up in a big way in the period after 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 covid so so basically therefore while the system was going on what you ended ended up having was two things one of course uh, there was a slowdown in the tech boom so obviously uh, this resulted in a situation in which getting additional funding for many of these uh, startups was difficult they needed to use the money which was already there lying with the svb as deposits as their deposits and therefore there was there was not as much new money coming in let us say possibly in order to be able to continue operations even when there were increased demands from depositors without them putting in new money because of the fact that they were not receiving money from venture capital firms and and vcs to the same extent the boom was ta- was tapering off it was at that point of time that uh, that uh, svb realized that what it must do was actually to sell some of its bonds in order to retrieve some money in order to pay off these depositors who were making demands okay and uh, so the depositors are making demands uh, because their cash flow was drying up because of the slowdown yeah i suppose it's 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 a following that that you know there's a bunch of uh, firms which get these investments which go and deposit it with svb they need to use those investments because that's the capital they are going to use till they get their ne- next tranche of funding but this didn't actually result in a situation where investments made made on the basis of past deposits needed to be liquidated in significant measure because there were new startups coming up which were bringing new money in and putting it there which were not they were not going to use all all of it immediately right so you constantly had just because of the law of large numbers and the fact that the 
that the system was in a boom, that you had money coming in and money going out because of the fact that those who had put in money earlier needed to use some of that money, but you never were faced with the liquidity crunch because you had money coming in as well. It was when that slowed down to a certain extent because the tech boom was waning that you actually ended up with a situation where obviously the demands which were being placed could not be easily Doesn't met. Doesn't this sound a bit like the, the circular flow? Sounds a bit like a Ponzi scheme, right? You get money from new... new. Yeah, it, it, it is not just this circular flow because then what you're doing is you're taking this money, you're investing part of it, of course, in the so-called or presumed secure bonds which are liquid mortgage bonds and, and, and treasuries. But the rest of it is actually either, uh, you know, in, in, in lent out to the, the same VCs and, and um, uh, venture capital funds, which in the first instance gave money to the startups who deposited this money and using that, de- I mean, leveraging that money, you're actually lending to the, to the same uh, uh, venture capital firms and, uh, and um, private equity funds. So, so it was in multiple senses a Ponzi scheme. You're basically saying that I'll keep them putting money into the startups because the startups are giving me the money to hold for a significant period of time. And then I'll use that money, they'll use that money, you know, to put it into the startups and I'll use the money which the startups give, give me to give them more money so that there'll be new startups or there'll be additional funding for old startups, which again will come back to me. So it had, yeah, it had in some sense uh, uh, elements of a Ponzi scheme written into it. Okay. Okay, so this this bond, uh, so the bond prices or whatever uh, went down. Yeah, so so what happened is at the point when the demand came from the uh, from the depositors, uh, the demands coming from the depositors in some sense exceeded the ability of current cash flows. Let us put it that way to be able to meet those demands, you needed to liquidate some of the assets that you had in order to generate the money to pay off these these depositors when they made their legitimate demands for their funds. Now, the problem, of course, was that while it was presumed that these were safe and liquid, in the interim, the world had shifted from an environment in which you had actually encouraged these kinds of, 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 of sort of entangled uh, booms in the, in the sort of uh, financial sector linked to so-called boom industries, in this case, the tech industry or the, uh, or the life sciences industry, the biotech industry that you you actually had moved from a world in which large infusion of cheap liquidity by the Federal Reserve in the case of the United States, of course, in response to the 2008 crisis, actually, rather than, you know, generate very robust recovery from the crisis, really generated a situation in which a significant amount of this money was going in for more speculative investments. Some of it went into crypto, which also has got affected. Some of it went into sort of circular investment, um, you know, well, I wouldn't call it a scheme, but investment tendencies of this kind. And that came to an end because you actually had inflation, which affected the United States and the advanced economies, which was not transient as people thought it would be that once COVID wanes, you are actually going to be in a situation where this inflation will disappear. Therefore, the Federal Reserve decides to increase its interest rate, its its policy rate from something like, uh, you know, a quarter of a percentage point to something like four and a half percentage points, which is a huge increase in interest rates. And when interest rates go up, obviously what happens is the bond prices come down because you have to pay a certain amount of money. but But the amount of money that you have to pay is now going up because interest rates are going up, which essentially means that to generate that kind of a, of a flow, you're actually talking about a situation where 
you're having what's what's happening is you're saying that these bonds are now worth less okay because a certain amount that you're paying off now accounts for a higher rate of interest than what it accounted for earlier so if bond prices come down and then i have to actually liquidate my bonds in order to get the money to meet the demands of these depositors which my current cash flows are not easily allowing me to settle then i'm actually would have to sell relative to the price at which i purchased those bonds i'll have to sell them at a much lower price and suffer a loss so what basically happened was something like 21 billion dollars i think of bonds which were sold by svb were sold at a huge loss uh, you know which um, which was about 1.8 billion uh, reports say and therefore it decided to go to the market to mobilize through issue of new shares something like 2.25 billion dollars to to sort of uh, you know cover the hole the the hole which is coming as a result of a loss of the sale of the bonds in the market which is now offering you a much lower price than the price at which you had purchased the bonds now the whole thing is if you had a situation where you marked to market that is each year when you did your accounts if in some sense prices of the any assets that you held have gone down and you actually said that okay the the assets i'm holding are not equivalent to uh, you know a certain billion dollars number of, you know certain certain sum but it's it's much less and therefore there is a loss that i have taken to my books if you're not doing that you really don't see the loss till such point of time as you forced to sell to redeem the money to in some sense get the money to pay your depositors and that's what happened and they decided to go to the market to mobilize new money but meanwhile obviously people realized that there was this i mean investors realized that there was this pressure on this bank and therefore you had a, a situation where compared to uh, i think a peak of something like 44 billion dollars to which the market capitalization of silicon valley bank had gone it had collapsed from there to 17 billion dollars by the time we got to march so obviously already you were on on a trajectory in which there was a significant decline in the in the stock value of the bank and therefore it really wasn't workable for it to go to market and issue issue this equity and mobilize this uh, 2.25 billion dollars which it wanted to get so it couldn't get that money the moment it couldn't get that money meanwhile people began to realize that listen this is under a squeeze depositors are taking money because they are taking money it's not able to it's suffering losses because it's going to be suffering losses you are actually going to have a situation where it wouldn't meet its commitments so they decided to pull out in fact many of these venture capital firms including you know uh, peter thiel's uh, fund and uh, and others decided to advise those uh, startups to which they had given money to pull out their money from svb so the sort of you know the sort of nice comfortable nexus between a bank specializing in dealing with startups and you know venture capital firms sort of that solidarity broke down and when that solidarity broke down you know different uh, depositors uh, despite the efforts of some began to pull out their money even when they didn't need it in order to move it to other 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 banks or other investments or instruments and that obviously resulted in a situation where it was clear that this was a major run but it was not a run in the sense of the normal run that we know where ordinary investors i mean depositors go and queue up in front of the bank to take their money out because they worried that their small savings would disappear this was a run on a bank which was made by people who had made significant money in this industry over a period of time in which of course that money was shared between the venture capital firms between the bank a bank like svb and of course the startups which are successful so so that that's how the collapse really occurred
Right. Now, of the three banks that uh, collapsed, you know, SVB, of course, is the, the main one. Then there was also Signature and Silvergate. Now, the Signature and Silvergate were heavily invested in the crypto sector, while uh, the Silicon Valley Bank was heavily into the tech sector. So, all these is this is this entire ecosystem or nexus, as you as you put it, between uh, tech startup founders and venture capitalists and the bankers who specialized in this particular sector. So, do you see this aspect, this concentration in one sector of startups and cryptos as a factor uh, in the collapse, which probably would not uh, be a key factor in other kind of similar situations? Yeah, you see, the point is, I, I suppose, uh, the, the, the best way to actually reduce average risk is to have a portfolio which is distributed across different industries, let us say, or different markets or different income groups, you know, so that the presumption there is you won't have simultaneous default. Well, in some situations, you can have simultaneous default like happened in 2008. But the normal perception is if you have a diversified portfolio with markets of very different uh, character in terms of the kind of industry it is and the kind kind of uh, instrument and so on and so forth, then you, to a certain extent, are protected from the risk of default, okay? Uh, but here, firstly, this is not even a risk of default. Here, the, the real the real problem entity in this was, was the fact that this is a capitalism which is sustained, where, where the boom is sustained by an injection of cheap liquidity by the central bank into the market. That money is used to engage in activity which can only be described as speculative but actually turns out to be glorified because it's supposed to create these tech startups who are going to make billionaires about people who dropped out of college or whatever it may be. And you end up uh, with a situation in which you're, 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 instead of actually looking at this carefully and saying that, listen, you know, isn't there excess concentration where you're using money to speculate in a small set of areas? And this can occur in, in other industries. But the the... the the, if you want to call it the, the base sin, was this huge injection of cheap liquidity into the system. And the moment you couldn't sustain that, the moment the central bank couldn't sustain that because inflation on the, was on the rise and therefore it had to unwind what were called un, unconventional monetary policies. It was actually bizarre. You had near zero interest rates. So when you began to unwind them and push up your interest rates, because that's the only instrument you thought you had to deal with inflation, which is not necessarily true, you ended up with a situation where the the set of factors which generated the speculative boom, if one can call it that, now actually you know pull the carpet out of all those in, um, from our, under the feet of all those investors. So therefore, you ended up with a situation where it was not sustainable. So it is true that concentration increases risk, but focusing on that, I think to a certain extent, diverts attention from the fundamental sort of uh, skewed nature of this capitalism where monetary policy is privileged and is used as an instrument and a mechanism to generate credit fuel booms or speculative investment fuel booms. And this is celebrated as being this sort of dynamic capitalism, which is very innovative. Right. Now, one one other risk factor here, which has been pointed out by analysts, is uh, you, you spoke about uh, this uh, not diversifying their portfolios. The other aspect is something which is supposed to be very basic in interest rate risk. I mean, if, if, there, if there is easy money coming in at 0% or whatever, that doesn't mean that it's going to remain that way. So, uh, isn't there a way banks sort of uh, provision for an interest rate regime change or risk and which this one uh, didn't do? Well, two things. First, of course, they're supposed to hedge. And uh, the story goes that uh, SVB did hedge uh, at an earlier stage. 
but then it 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 sort of uh, it it's cushions of comfort as minsky described it obviously you know sort of allowed it to to come to believe that okay i'm doing so well and so there's so much money coming in and so so much returns i'm enjoying that they thought it was not necessary to hedge that this story is going to continue or there wasn't enough due diligence but the the lack of due diligence was not only of svb and its managers who were in, engaging in this kind of uh, you know huge you know sort of investments uh, so half half of their securities or more were um, uh, uh, were in in these kinds of bonds where interest rates the interest rate risk as you, as you mentioned it was 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 positive and even high possibly but but the, the point is that there should be regulatory agencies in a deregulated i mean a sort of liberalized world which is actually tracking all this and we know that what happened is that as opposed to after the 2008 crisis as opposed to close scrutiny which was required by the regulators and the federal reserve and so on of banks which had a capital of something like 50 billion dollars Uh, and that so was this part was of the, the Dodd Dodd Frank Act, which came into place after two thousand eight, which Donald Trump supposedly rolled back. So that was twenty eight. That began to be implemented in twenty twenty. I'm sorry, twenty ten. Okay. Then in twenty eighteen, there is a decision because of the, the the strength of finance, because of the role of conservative uh, sort of politicians and so on and so forth. It was decided that this. Fifty billion would be raised to two hundred and fifty billion, which obviously put Silicon Valley Bank out of that scrutiny. Though at that time when that uh, that that amendment was made uh, or that new regulation, new diluted regulation was brought in, it left the choice of actually reducing that two fifty billion ceiling to I mean, I'm floor to a hundred billion, so that if even if you were a hundred billion. you could be made accountable in terms of actually prevent pre- presenting a set of uh, set of uh, making a set of disclosures as well as following a set of guidelines uh, which the regulator is going to look at whether you're following it or not you you could have you could have brought that in because it allowed you but you didn't bring that in it remains at 250 and therefore it's not merely what the silicon valley bank managers did themselves which of course lacked due diligence and didn't take account of interest rate risk even though they themselves supposedly were saying that oh this kind of a boom cannot last a tech boom cannot last uh, but in addition to that you had the fact that uh, you know deregulation uh, or uh, regulatory forbearance results in a situation where this this goes unnoticed and the whole point is when you liberalize what you're supposed to have is greater freedom for decision making on the part of atomistic agents but also the introduction of new forms of regulation which ensures that you know too much risk doesn't accumulate in the system and obviously that wasn't happening so this is a, this is virtually saying that no lessons were learned not merely from the great, great depression but from from 2008 you know that that you really didn't learn the lessons which you had you you initially did to a certain extent even dot frank was was a much diluted version of what it was originally intended to be but even that dot frank was diluted even further and that underlies partly this this failure right uh, excessive uh, deregulation without adequate safeguards in place is of course uh, one factor now the us government has sort of uh, come in very strongly and has said that it's going to guarantee the money of all depositors 
in excess of deposit insurance now is this uh, a financially uh, a good decision or is there an issue of moral hazard here because you spoke about speculative uh, boom uh, in this context so given that uh, svb had exposure only in one sector and there was a lot of speculation happening is this a financially a good move to sort of safeguard guarantee the money of depositors or is there an issue of moral hazard both the federal reserve and the government i mean us administration has basically done two things one it has actually said that uh, as opposed to the the promise that uh, as part of the federal deposit insurance uh, corporation act you know that that the deposit insurance corporation would insure deposits of up to 250000 us dollars per person that we would now actually uh, compensate all depositors whether they had more than whatever be the level of their deposits whether it be a billion or even many billions this was partly because of the fact that more than 90% of the deposits which went to svb were above the levels warranted for i mean which were eligible for deposit insurance so you could get 20 250000 but possibly each of those depositors had put many billions in because that was the money which the venture capital firms and the uh, and the and the private equity funds etc had given them okay so therefore what you are in essence saying is that listen this is not normally what is the idea that you are trying to protect the depositor and the notion of the depositor is some kind of ordinary citizen the saver the normal household saver so you're basically saying that listen i'm going to try and protect these uh, savers because it is true that the banking system is the first port of call of the nation's savings and these people go and put their money there because they think it's secure to keep their money there and therefore we need to protect them in some fashion so you brought in deposit insurance and the whole idea was you protect the small depositor and therefore you basically said that 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 sort of uh, insurance promise uh, subject to banks paying, paying a premium is actually has got a ceiling that they that beyond a certain amount if you happen to be a rich investor having large amounts of money which are putting into deposits you're partly taking that risk you're you're choosing to keep it in this instrument so it's only up to a certain level that you would uh, provide them deposit insurance so what you're basically saying is that in the name of the ordinary depositor a large bunch of rich depositors which basically consists of the startup units okay now therefore what you're saying is that listen this is this is in some sense protecting a whole uh, a whole universe and and of course what you're saying is that listen we are not protecting the bondholders we are not protecting the the shareholders we are only protecting the depositors but as i said these are not ordinary depositors and these were depositors who thought the best way to keep their money is to put it into these uh, these uh, these as as deposits into 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 this bank or or any other bank and and use it as and when they need the second thing which they which the federal reserve has said that any other bank which is faced with a tendency for a withdrawal of uh, of deposits which is creating uh, a liquidity crunch that is if there is any contagion effect of what has happened to silicon valley trust signature and, and silvergate etc then what you're going to say, what you're essentially saying is that if you actually find that there is a withdrawal of deposits which is occurring at a pace in which you're going to face a liquidity crunch and you're forced therefore to liquidate some assets and you're not able to liquidate those assets without suffering a major loss because of the fact that interest rates are going up what you can do is bring those those pieces of paper which in the market now cost much less than their purchase price or their par value 
and we will give you money against those bonds at par value you know in both of these cases one actually providing complete deposit insurance to all depositors independent of their size and two telling others who haven't yet been affected that but if you get affected because of a withdrawal of deposits and you will be forced to sell and when you're trying to sell you can suffer losses which can affect the stability of the financial system i'm not going to ha- let that happen because you can come and give me your, your instruments and i will again you know at 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 its par value lend to you against those instruments you know and this is basically saying that the central bank actually the federal reserve accepting that in some sense it is at the core of the problem that the fact that you know that all of this is happening is because of the fact that it moved and or was forced to move given its perceptions from a near zero interest rate regime to currently a near 5% interest so is, is this like a bailout using taxpayers money yeah so they have said that listen this is not going to be based on taxpayers money as far as the first is concerned that is what what you're going to do in terms of silicon valley depositors because they said that they are going to put a a sort of a whatever cess or something like you know whatever you want to call it on banks and mobilize the money separately this is not going to be on the basis of the normal taxpayer but if the federal reserve is buying is a sort of a, you know taking as collateral at par value bonds which are priced much less you know those bonds were trading in if it in the case of senior debt i think it was trading at about 45 cents to the dollar in the case of junior debt it was you know i don't know 12.5 cents to the dollar or something like that so you're basically saying that listen i'll 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 in some sense uh carry all the risks of a major loss by taking these 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 bonds and funding you at par value now that is, that is no way something which is going to be funded by anybody other then some entity which in the final analysis must place the burden of losses on the system and that system is finally sustained on the basis of taxpayers money in whatever complex route it is so you can say that i'm going to impose a cess to cover the the insurance which is associated with the with the svb but you cannot i i don't understand how you can say that what the federal reserve is going to do which is in some sense taking over losses in the hope that in some you know in some point in the future bond prices would 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 uh, you know shift such that i mean our interest rates would shift that such that bond prices would come back to levels at which they are at, at near their par value you're taking that risk which is something which is not going to be realized and if there is any loss which is suffered which i think is is, is likely to happen then who's covering that in the final analysis it would be socializing the cost of a bailout and socializing the cost of the bailout mean, meant that if not on today's taxpayers it falls at in on taxpayers sometime in the future right now coming back to this uh, central banks uh, role here i mean all over the world their main agenda or function seems to be to do inflation management using monetary policy and so on so is there a contradiction given the svb example contradiction between uh, inflation management and financial stability are the two contradictory goals because one seems to have sort of caused damage to the other this raising of interest rates and it has occurred qu- quite sharply over a very short period of time has still not tamed inflation in these countries okay so it's not even that this is an agreed upon way of trying to tackle inflation just as much as obviously you didn't get the kind of robust recovery that you thought you'd get in many most parts of the world to a certain extent in a, in a in a very you know sort of uh, complex fashion where uh, you know precarious employment at uh, early rates which are by no means great 
uh, seems to push up the number of jobs in the system, which you, which is what you're attributing the inflation to, which is not true. Inflation is occurring because of the fact that, you know, concentrated monopoly groups are speculating in the market on on goods varying from, uh, you know, fuel to uh, to food. But anyway, you, 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 so you're not able to control inflation, nor did you actually get the robust recovery. So fundamentally, the principal lever which uh, neoliberal capitalism uses as a macroeconomic lever to stabilize the system, which of course in the earlier sort of, uh, you know, golden age or the, the, the Keynesian era was really a reliance on fiscal policy. Now it's become a reliance on monetary policy. That that has not only not worked, but as you mentioned, it creates a situation in which there's money which flows into speculative investment, which affects the stability or, or increases the instability, the, the, the fragility of the system, the possibility of instability. Now, the other thing I think is that, that this whole this whole neoliberalism, which of course prescribes to every other country, and the Europeans, for example, are upset, but those who should be really upset are the poor countries of the world, in which you basically say that, listen, you must let markets work. The government should not intervene in ways in which the market remedies the problems, the uh, the complexities which arise for so, so, so supposedly the existence of uh, imperfections, high transaction costs, uh, high information costs, etc. That when it does things in order to correct for that, the state should not intervene to actually, you know, try and bail out uh, entities or sectors or whatever it may be, because that is uh, creating moral hazard. It's actually going to encourage that, that kind of work and it doesn't actually allow the system to find a new equilibrium. Now, this is what has been prescribed to everybody. And, and the Europeans are really angry. They said that you, you told us to, to behave like this and now what are you doing? You're basically saying that, uh, that neoliberalism is demonstrated to be what it actually is, which is neoliberalism is a way of during periods of boom to redistribute incomes away from the, the, the sort of... Uh, the citizenry at large, in favor of a few, you know, super rich or those at the top end of the of the uh, the income spectrum or uh, income pyramid, and uh, you you do this, and at point of time when uh, having engineered that kind of a redistribution of income, you run into a crisis because of the speculation on the basis of which that that kind of redistribution is based. Then what you do is you actually come in and don't don't let the market work. You come in and actually bail out the system and create the basis, hopefully in a, in a couple of years in your point of view, for the system to go back to riding on some, some other speculative boom. So it's, it's actually not merely a demonstration of the failure of, of macroeconomic policy under neoliberalism to stabilize the system, but it is also a demonstration of what neoliberalism actually is, that it actually is a game of the rich in which you allow the market to supposedly operate without regulation and with a great degree of freedom so long as you're in a boom. And when that boom stops generating the redistribution that you want in the wrong direction, then you stop the market from functioning. And the, the state comes in and bails out uh, the different actors uh, to different degrees. So that's that's what this is. Right. Capitalism for the poor and socialism for the rich, so to speak. Uh, and it comes to a different time frames uh, in the way markets are functioning. Two quick questions, CP, before we wind up, we're way out of time. One, uh, how serious uh, is the likelihood of what they've come to use, the term contagion from the SVB collapse? And secondly, what lessons can India draw uh, from this entire development? 
Well, it, it's, it's, see, there are, there are two elements to this contagion. One element of the contagion is the fundamental problem, is that if you're, if you're stuck on a path in which you're going to actually keep interest rates high and maybe increase them even a little more because of the, the threat of inflation, then you are in a world in which you're saying that, okay, I mean, maybe in America you, keep, you can keep saying that the Federal Reserve is going to print US dollars and uh, keep uh, bailing out these firms who are buying up their assets at par because if they try to sell those assets when interest rates are high, they're going to make significant losses. Okay, so the first contagion is all entities are now going to be scrutinized because of the fact that they are, might be sitting on assets which if they had to liquidate for one reason or the other as the system slows and is expected to slow, then they can suffer a loss. That's one. What does it mean for countries like India? I think it, it basically means that we should uh, learn from, in some sense, not from what we are told by the international financial institutions, by global finance, by the you know advanced economy governments which back that finance, etc. That we should pursue this uh, you know this open economy, market-led, uh, market uh, sort of uh, driven. Um, uh, you know, deregulated system, which is what uh, India has been following from, from from 1991. And between 1991 and now, we know so much has happened that we are one of the you know, significantly liberalized system in the world. And therefore, that we, 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 are, we are open to this fragility. And we do not have currency of a kind which we can print and save these institutions at any given point of time because we are not... We are not uh, uh, home to hard or reserve currencies, you know, and therefore it's going to be much more difficult for you even to bail out, even if that bailout... There is a lot of patting oneself on the back in India because they, they say that India is reasonably insulated because we are, our banking system is far more robust. We don't have that kind of, you know, this diluted Dodd-Frank kind of a system which is there in the US. Our banks have much more uh, stronger, whatever, capital adequacy ratios, etc. So this can never happen in India. So this kind of patting oneself on the back, you think that is some uh, justification for that? Come on, we have just come out of a period in which we know that once you change the guidelines for the discovery of uh, of uh, bad assets, uh, the RBI changed the guidelines in 2015, 2016. We saw a huge spike because there was so much concealed bad assets in the public banking system. The point to note is that the existence of the public banking system does generate a certain degree of resilience. But how the public banks work is dependent not just on the fact that they are owned by the state, but it also depends on the nature of that state. If the state is pursuing a policy which encourages speculative activity on the part of the banking system or forces banks to do things which they don't want to do, but you want them to do, like lending to private corporates for huge infrastructural investments which cannot generate profit, then obviously you'll get a huge amount of non-performing assets. And what did we do? We actually you know, push that onto the shoulders of current and future taxpayers, which was what the capitalization of all the public banks really involved. So it's not that we haven't been through this, this whole idea that we are resilient. We actually went through a period when, when there was a serious crisis in the banking system. Because these were public banks, the government could actually, actually say that, listen, this was because of some wrong policies which were adopted in the past, and therefore we are going to save these banks, uh, which is our duty and so on and so forth. But that was in demonstration that these banks are not all that resilient because of the fact that those the entity which owns the bank had stopped wanting them to be resilient. Right. Of course, as you, as you put it, the, the, the existence of a public banking system does give some amount of resilience potentially for the system as a whole. But then uh, a lot depends on how the state acts 
uh, in this system and in this scenario and then whether we have a system of you know pushing kicking the can uh, down the road for future generations of taxpayers thank you so much uh, cp for joining us today and for sharing your really really deeply illuminating thoughts and explanations of what actually have went down uh, when the silicon valley bank went down last week thank you so much thank you in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon